This is Teaching the Teacher, Episode 7. I'm Nancy Debit Trombley, and I thank you for listening to this podcast where I get schooled by my former students. This episode has something for everybody. If you think you might like to become a chef, we've got you sorted from A to Z. If you're fascinated by Anthony Bourdain and wonder about the mental health crisis in the culinary world, listen right to the end to learn about what my guest is doing to fix that situation. If you're an amateur cook and want some tips and hacks, you're in the right place. And if you were ever a teacher with a soft spot for a rowdy guy at the back of the class who never handed in anything on time but kept you laughing, this episode will absolutely transport you. My guest is Michael Vieira, a top Toronto chef. Back in the day, Mike wrote English essays, yes, handing them in late, that I've never forgotten. And you will hear this chef is a poet at heart when he starts talking. In 11 short years, Mike has opened seven restaurants, worked as the sous chef at the renowned Heise restaurant in Toronto, and he is currently executive chef at Marked, a bustling downtown Toronto restaurant, which is getting rave reviews. And that's where I found him to do this interview. Uh, so this is Marked. So I started with them just after the first lockdown from COVID. So I was at Highs, as you know. <clears throat> um, I The salary there was amazing and the restaurant is gorgeous. The food quality was incredible, but I'm more of like an artisan kitchen kind of guy. I, I will start at the beginning, I guess, with like what you were like as a kid. I mean, it, it's not everybody grows up to be a chef. Um, so I'm, I'm, were you that kid who was like, bring on the anchovies, mom? Yes, add more garlic to that broccoli. I'd like some blue cheese. Was that you? See, it's, it's really funny because almost all the chefs I know, like food was such a big part of their upbringing. And for me, it really wasn't. I was a super picky eater. I like my favorite food groups were hot dogs and pizza, right? That was that was the extent of my food knowledge. I I messed around with cooking breakfast from time to time. I could make a pretty mean French toast, but beyond that, like before I went to culinary school, there was no relationship between me and food whatsoever. I it came out of nowhere. It kind of I learned to love food because I loved kitchen culture. And I was, if you remember back when I first started high school, I was a dishwasher at Fratelli's in Highland Creek. And that that experience was kind of where my mind kept going back to was the, the culture in the kitchen versus, you know, like, sure, I liked to eat, but I didn't know much about cooking or any of the technical stuff. But the culture of the kitchen and just the crazy, like, bandit crew of pirates that they had back there and the amount of fun that they could have but also the work ethic and the discipline it, it blew my mind uh, like it, and it stuck with me it stuck with me until after high school um, like we know that I wanted to at one point maybe be a journalist or a university professor and teach English I wanted to do something with writing and that was that was my passion um, but yeah it wasn't until after high school when I took that year-long sort of break and, and had a lot of time to think about whether or not I wanted to, you know, subject myself to however many more years of school. Um, I just decided I just wanted to start doing something and that's kind of where I landed. And, and like I said, I, I grew to love food. I remember, I remember when you were washing the dishes and you would talk about how you'd like to get your hands on the risotto and maybe they let you make a risotto or two and it was. Yeah, I was lucky if they let me dust the calamari, but it was, <laughs> 
it was still a good time. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so you went to culinary school. So you you had to uh, you you got training. Culinary school is is pretty bizarre. Um, so, yeah. So you do you do the demos first. So you sit through a class where a teacher or an instructing chef does a demo of a few dishes, basically to isolate and work on certain techniques. So the first one that I recall was like your first class is based on veg cuts. So you make like a ratatouille, like a, a stew version of ratatouille. And it's all these like perfect little diced knife cuts. So they're teaching you how to use your knife um, in a practical way. Um, so you basically sit through the lab where the instructing chef makes the dish in front of you. I slept through most of them, I'm not gonna lie, because they were so early in the morning. Um, no stranger to sleeping in class, I guess. Uh, and then the labs themselves, you go in and you actually cook those dishes. There's a chef who walks around and stands over your shoulder, makes sure you're doing everything right. They evaluate you based on sort of how you work, how you organize yourself. Um, and if you do a good job, you get good grades. And it's very practical in that sense, which I think is why I liked culinary school so much and why I came to love cooking is because it's all very hands-on. There's not a lot of, you know, sure, there's some talk and there's, you know, there's, there is sitting through classes. Um, but at the end of the day, it's all about learning through experience. Um, and then, of course, the other 50%, yeah, you take math courses, you take marketing courses, you take, uh, uh, like, office courses, like whatever, Microsoft Office. Um, fun fact, I actually didn't get my certificate from culinary school because I missed a deadline on my computers course. And I didn't realize it at the time, but it's pass fail. And if you miss a deadline, you're done. So missed a deadline, failed that course. And to repeat, it was gonna cost me like 500 bucks or something like that. And by that time I was already working. So I was like, eh, I don't know if I really need the piece of paper how many times did I tell you that you, when you got out in the world, you'd have to hand things in on time? I don't know. Probably, probably a million times. I just, you know. <laughs> but the thing is that the whole thing about this work that you do, it's more work ethic than probably anybody I know. So that all changed, right? Yeah, well, 100%. And it's, deadlines are important now more than they ever have been, I would say, um, especially given my new role as executive chef. It's... Uh, it's a lot of keeping track of things outside of the kitchen as well as inside. So, you know, I have to be up to date on my paperwork and my invoices. I have to make sure suppliers are getting paid. I have to make sure that, um, you know, staff are getting paid on time, that, you know, hours are being clocked, that my costs are in line, that my budgets are lining up. And yeah, so it, it's funny to see if you could see, if you could work a day with me and see the level of organization that I have now versus what I had back in high school. It's, it's night and day. And I say that with no exaggeration. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'm kind of laughing. I, even doing math. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of had a little bit of a no, thank you. Yeah, no, I was very anti-math. And the nice thing is that the, the math in the kitchen is fairly simple. Um, I try to keep things metric so that the math is nice and easy. Everything's in tens. A lot of chefs still work with like, you know, imperial systems and like cups and teaspoons. I, every, all my recipes are down to the gram um, just so that I can, it's just it's much easier to manage the math when it's done that way, right? Okay, I, I kind of have to go back a bit because like, sorry, there's so much. Um, it, it, ratatouille, I've never made a good ratatouille. I honestly don't think, that's a really hard thing. You were just learning that at the beginning Yep. It's, they don't, they don't, uh, the training wheels come off right away. 
they expect you to perform. There's a lot of like, even in culinary school, there's a bit of an ego culture, which is still very pertinent in the industry as well. Um, a lot of the people who go to culinary school have already been working in professional kitchens for a while. So sometimes like I would find like you'd be in a demo or something and you'd ask a question and somebody would, you know, somebody would crap all over you and be like, how do you not know that? Like it, what comes back to me was uh, making Caesar salad dressing, which is like, you know, maybe the second class that you do and they're teaching you about emulsions and how to whisk a mayo together by hand. Um, and they're pureeing anchovies. Um, in the very first lab that you do, they teach you how to puree garlic with a knife. And when you puree garlic with a knife, you chop it super, you, you smash the garlic clove and then you salt it. And if you salt it slightly, uh, it actually, so like you ever notice when you're chopping garlic, it sticks to your knife? I, I had a plan, my, my next question was about garlic. Is there an easier way so to mince garlic? You add a tiny pinch of salt to it when you're processing it, it doesn't stick to your knife. Don't ask me why, I can't break down the science for you, but all of that sticky oil business, it combats that, I guess it cuts through the oil. And so when you're chopping garlic, just a tiny little pinch of fine salt to it and it will chop just fine, no worries. So anyways, um, in this class, they're pureeing anchovies with a knife to, uh, to add to the Caesar dressing. I've never had an anchovy in my life. I think they're disgusting. I still do actually, it's one of the few things now I'm not a big fan of. Um, and so she's pureeing it with a knife and I raise my hand and I'm like, Are you, did, did you add salt to this at any point? And half of the class just instantly scoffs at me and is like, idiot, anchovies are so salty. Why would you add salt? And I'm like, I'm just asking a question because I don't know, right? And so, so there's a lot of that culture in culinary school where there are other people who already know things and there are other people who don't know anything, uh, which can make it kind of like, it, oftentimes it made me not want to ask questions and, and, and that, that culture leaves culinary school and it finds root in professional kitchens all over the place. It's one of the biggest problems in professional kitchens is too much ego and not enough teaching, right? And that for me is, I, I, think, I think my favorite part of my job is that I get to teach people things all the time. Um, and I can't, I, I just can't fathom somebody not wanting to do that as part of this job. Like why, why do something that is so like so inherently about caring for other people, right? You're feeding people. That's what you're doing. You're nourishing people. So why not like, why not also try to nourish people's minds, right? And that's, I, I never understood it. I still don't understand it. So in my kitchens, I'm like, I really try to combat that ego culture in a big way. It's, it just gets, it gets shut down immediately if I hire someone and they're all ego, no compassion, you know? Um, there has to be an even mix of both to be, to be anything, like to be a notable chef, to be somebody who is memorable, I think you need to be compassionate. You need to be able to be a teacher also. Well, because if people can't feel they can't ask a question, they could potentially really screw something up. 100%. And that's, and, and at the end of the day, if a mistake gets made, it's on me. It's on me. It's on my sous chefs. It's not going to be on the cook who made the mistake. If a dish comes back to the kitchen and the guest is not satisfied with it, I'm not like, sure, I can get to the root of the problem and blame someone. But at the end of the day, it's my name on the menu and you know, I'm the one who's gonna get written up about it. So um, I think it's invaluable to be a teacher first and a chef second, right? Like, yeah, if so you can, cool. you're not interested in educating your cooks, there's really no point in, in doing this at all. So cool. You know, I, if I've, I don't wanna flatter you too much, but I, I don't know that I met another student 
in all my years that had a deeper, more quick um, understanding of Shakespeare. You, you got it quickly, you saw it deeply. At one time, do you remember when I got you to, I think you were being bad, honestly, you were driving me crazy and we were acting out the play and mm -hmm. I said- Multiple roles okay, by myself. Okay, Mike, you just go over there and do this by yourself, this yeah. scene. <laughs> and it was um, Cornwall gouging Lear's eyes out right. and then the servant stabbing, other people goading him on and then the servant, servant stabbing him and then the other eye coming out and there's King Lear on the chair and, the, and all this is going on and you did it all by yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. It was, and I told kids about that for years. You know, there was this guy I taught um, who did the, but you know what? I think that's you in the kitchen probably. I think a little bit. It's, it's very like, obviously like I pretty, I had pretty bad ADD back in the day and I still do. Um, and I think it has actually served me well in this industry, right? Because at any given time, there's 100 things happening around you. Um, and and as someone with ADD, you're hyper aware of every single one of those 100 things that are going on around you. Um, so like, you know, in the middle of a busy service at any given time, I'm, I'm talking to a manager who's on the other side of the pass. I'm working a section. So I've got six things cooking on the stove. Maybe I've got something in the deep fryer. My guy on the salad station has cut his finger off or something like that. And I'm, I'm aware of all these things happening around me at the same time. Um, and I think, and I think, yeah, I think it, it comes from, that, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm still super hyper. Um, and my brain is always doing a 1000 things at once. And I think I think that's why I stuck with this for so long, too. Um, because I can't think of another field where I'm going to be as as in it and as fully occupied at all times as I am when I do this. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think I think absolutely that that has that quality has definitely translated into into my career, for sure. So, okay, I, 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 we better do some of the biographical stuff. So you told me that you've written, worked in high-end restaurants across yes. Toronto, and then you went to Montreal and Charlottetown a bit. Yep. Assisted with opening seven different restaurants. That's correct. And you, you started from the salad guy and became an executive chef in, in, in 11 years. Um, my first job was working for Suser Lee at Lee on King Street, um, which when I worked there, it was not long after he had flipped from the very high-end tasting menu only concept to a more casual uh, dining experience. But his standards are still very like, very, very high-end. He still operates like a very fine dining chef. But I learned a lot in that position. So at Lee, I was working an average of 14 to 16 hours a day five sometimes six days a week and if you do the math there's no good night's sleep there there's no it's not possible to get eight hours uh, the days are extremely long um, and I, i'm glad that i started with the big fancy restaurant because it taught me instantaneously that hard work is it's the key to this whole thing um, you just you'll never get your feet off the ground if you're not willing to grind and to put in the hours that are needed to get the job done um, after Lee, break down from. I mean, how can you go without? I, you're a pretty strong guy, but that like I, I, you can't keep going like that, can you? Well, and that's the thing, right? It's I think it's like fifty percent of chefs burn out in the first year, um, and they don't they never go back. And then uh, I think it's I forget I think it's like the three year mark or something. It's something like seventy five percent of people on a chef track they don't follow through after the three year mark because of burnout. Um, 
I was very energetic when I was younger. I could, you know, I could, in my first job, I could work that 16 hour day, party all night, get no sleep, go back to work the next day and be totally fine. Nowadays, I'm 29, I just turned 29 on Monday. Um, and I can't do it anymore. I cannot, I, I need my, I need my eight hours. If I don't get my eight hours, I'm grumpy. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely burnout is a real thing. It's hard because it affects you more than just being tired. Like, um, you feel mentally exhausted as well. Um, and it's, and it's, you get, um, what do you call it? Like empathy fatigue where like you always have to put on a happy face for the guests and make sure that everybody's satisfied. Um, and you don't have any left for yourself at the end of the day. Right. Uh, so you go home and you're tired and you're sad and, and you're lonely because your social life is limited to two o'clock in the morning till six o'clock. Yeah. Ring and nobody is alive at those times. Yeah. Um, so your social life changes, um, your hours of living change. You work in a kitchen that has no windows usually. And so you don't see the light of day most of the time. Um, so it's a weird life and this big adjustment. Now that I'm in a position to, you know, to make measurable change, uh, I try to make sure that my cooks don't have to go through what I went through at the start of my career. Try now to make sure that, that that's not happening. You know, but end of the day, like I said, I've opened seven restaurants and when you open restaurants and, and I don't, I don't seek out openings. They sent, they tend to find me opening restaurants is really stressful. Um, for the first six months you work 70, 80 hours a week because there's just so much going on. Um, yeah. So I, like I said, I don't seek them out, but when I was with Oliver and Bonaccini, um, I got transferred to a new open up in Bayview village and we opened, it's one of OMB's biggest properties. It's an event space, a barbecue joint, and an Italian restaurant all in one. They opened up the Italian restaurant, then the barbecue joint, and then the event space. And I was overseeing that as executive sous chef, um, which is just like each one is like opening a new location. So it's long days. Um, they flew me out to Calgary before that to help open Bufo in Calgary, um, which is their Italian restaurant out there, basically just to sort of show me what it would be like to open a restaurant with them. Um, Oh, wow. So I did that opening. And then when I, yeah, and then after that, we did the, the three tiered opening. And then I left that restaurant to go help a buddy out in Charlottetown who was taking over a, a dive bar that the company who owned the dive bar really wanted to, to step the food up a notch. Um, so he was, he was Michael Smith's chef de cuisine at, in at Bay Fortune in PEI, on PEI, I should say. Um, so I went out to work with him. And of course, this is a place that's only open during the summertime. So it's, uh, it's like opening a new restaurant when you go in for the beginning of the season. So hire all new staff, develop a new menu, um, figure out how the place is going to run on top of things like finding a place to live and getting used to a province that you've never been to before. Okay. Um, and then I got back to Toronto after that season was ended and that job evaporated. And I started with Highs, which was opening their new location and this... I don't know if you've been to the new location, but it's a monster. It's like, I think total it can seat at once, like 500 and something people. It's massive. Opening restaurants, um, mm. food tastes better, if, it, depending on like the plate and the environment. And also that people will order, if they're hungry, they'll order something that's more expensive, even though something that's cheaper might fill them up more. It, is there like a lot more than the recipe that goes into this? Totally. Um, the first thing you said is, and the, the simple way that we put it in, in, the, in 
in every kitchen that I've ever worked in is that happy cooks make happy food or, you know, good mood makes good food. Um, and for sure, it is something that, um, that is immeasurable when you're cooking professionally. Um, you'll see it in like in the difference between a really, really busy service when everything's going well and the food comes up and it's beautiful and it's hot and it's delicious. And, and when you're on the line and when you're cooking, um, it's just like everything, when everything's happening and the timing is working, um, it's very like, I don't know, it's, it, it almost feels like a spiritual experience. Like you're not even there. Um, and your seasoning is on point. You can feel the salt rolling off your fingers. You can tell by the sound of that frying pan that you're not even looking at whether or not your steak is seared properly. Um, for sure, being in a good mood changes, changes the way the food comes up. Uh, and when you're, you know, if, if I find myself in a stink in the middle of service, you'll notice it right away. Things start going wrong uh, right away. Whenever the mood in the kitchen is, is low, um, bad things happen. And it's, it's, it's like I said, it's almost, it's almost mythical. It's, there's no real good explanation for it other than to say that, you know, a happy kitchen makes happy food. Um, in terms of like the behavior of guests in restaurants, I think that what I've learned more as I've taken on management roles is that perception is everything. Um, if a guest sees a large price on a menu, like a, a high price, they're going to expect a big portion of food, which I think goes back to what you're saying. If someone's hungry, they'll spend more because the correlation is that they're going to get more, uh, which I think is funny because when you get into the really high-end restaurants, more money does not necessarily mean more food. Um, I remember when I was the executive sous chef at Luma, which is actually just down the street from where I am now, um, we were trying to do sort of like what Canoe was doing, but in a more accessible way. So sometimes I... Uh, Sometimes I'd bring in like really beautiful, like dry aged uh, New York strip steaks from the cheese boutique. Um, and I'd like, you know, if you're serving a 10 ounce, 60 day dry aged steak, um, that 10 ounce steak costs me, my cost probably 25 bucks, 28 bucks. So to make money off of it, I've got to sell that plate for about $90, right? And a lot of people see a 10 ounce steak for $90 on a plate and get upset about it. Um, so yes, I guess the, the idea is that the guest expects a certain thing for a certain dollar value. If you don't meet those, those sort of parameters of, of expectation in terms of portioning, um, those guests aren't gonna come back. Uh, and that's, at the end of the day, that's the worst thing, right? We say the most expensive thing in a restaurant is an empty seat. Hearing you like talking about finding ingredients places. So do you, I'm, I'm thinking that you're probably really good at cooking Italian food. I, just, I yeah. do, do cook me in Italian because because I opened that Italian restaurant up in Bayview Village. And the chef that I worked with there, Andrew Pitchinen, an incredible chef and an, an incredible teacher. Um, so we were making we were making pasta from scratch, and you learn about um, the like the tiniest difference in the humidity of the room that you're working in uh, can affect the texture of your dough. Um, so yeah, when we were making pasta down in the basement, we put a big pot of water on the stove and get it boiling to create some humidity to, to give the dough a little bit more workability. Um, I never would have thought of any of that. Um, there's like, I think we had five or six different recipes for pasta dough based on like, this is the dough for the tagliatelle and the spaghetti. This is the dough for the ravioli and the angelotti. This is the dough recipe for the tonarelli alla cittara. Um, and 
and all of them had reasons for being slightly different. And, you know, it's like, you know, with ravioli, you always use a fattier dough. So you use lots of egg yolks and some whole eggs and you add olive oil to it uh, to keep it elastic and to make it pliable. But if you're making, let's say like a, a hand rolled dumpling, like a, like a cavatelli or an orecchietti, uh, you always just use a semolina and water dough so that it's nice and dry uh, and it can hold up to like a lot of hand pressure. Because uh, when you're making pasta, a lot of it is um, creating texture um, in the dough so that it holds the condiment better. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. Um, yeah, lots of different aspects to it. Um, when we talk about building a recipe, um, for me, seasonality is, is paramount, um, especially where we are, um, because Ontario's seasons are like our growing season is, is pretty short. Um, during the spring and summer, we have this like bounty of incredible produce and it's, and you'll see it in high-end restaurants too. The menus in the spring and summer are always way more exciting than they are in winter. Um, but I, I like the challenge of making those winter things shine um recently getting into things like fermentation and and you know um traditional method pickling um so that you can take those seasonal ingredients and have access to them in the months when you wouldn't normally you, you have to constantly be learning um or else you get bored quickly right um so you will you will i know that <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely and, and for me i mean Boredom is a major issue. I, I like to change things all the time. Um, so yeah, I mean, in the kitchens, we, we change uh, menus based on seasonality. Um, when it comes to building a recipe, sort of my more recent um, mentality has been to focus on, in, on an ingredient and try really hard to make the focus of the plate not necessarily be a meat protein. Um, and that's, that's been challenging for me because my, my food life has been so meat centric. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, all I ate was chicken fingers, hot dogs, hamburgers, and pepperoni pizza. Um, but nowadays th there's this shift in the food industry to start thinking about um, animal protein as not something that is at the center of the plate. Um, there's a great book by uh, Dan Barber, who's a chef out of New York state. Uh, he has uh, uh, stone barns at blue hill he's probably my favorite chef uh, the book is called the third plate he talks about three plates of food right so the plate of food from the 1950s the plate of food from the 1990s and the plate of food that we should be eating now and the food the, the plate from the 50s is a big steak some mashed potatoes like a really small quantity of mashed potatoes and like a roasted carrot and then the plate from the 90s is like a, a smaller, like a chicken leg with uh, like a big bowl of roasted potatoes and a couple of glazed carrots. So as you can see, like the vegetables are getting a little more attention. And then his third plate is a carrot at the center of the plate. So this beautiful uh, farm grown fresh carrot that's been roasted and cured and treated like a steak. Uh, and then with maybe it's like a cured beef shaved over top. So it's like you've taken what was you know maybe a pound of meat and you've shaved it down to maybe 10 grams of meat and it's using not necessarily eliminating meat from our diets entirely but uh using it more as an accent to 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 more vegetable focused things uh 
which for me, that's, that's been my philosophy the last couple of years um, is trying really hard to make that third plate a reality. Um, because I mean, when you really look at it, when you look at statistics and you look at the numbers, um, mass farming is, it, it contributes more to, to carbon emissions than almost any industry. I, I don't know the exact stats, but it's yeah, especially yeah. cattle farming. It's really, really bad for the environment. Um, and they say that we're going to face like a worldwide meat shortage in the next, not, not 50 years from now, but in the next 10 years, we're going to see this happening. Um, so we need to start shifting globally, shifting our mindset to a more vegetable focused diet. And if we do it now, if we, if we think about doing this right away, um, we have the chance to still have access to animal proteins if we use them more sparingly and stop thinking about dinner as having to be, you know, we're having chicken for dinner or we're having a steak for dinner rather than we're having all these beautiful vegetables that we have access to that can be grown sustainably, um, you know, with maybe like, maybe it's just like, I don't know, vegetarian pasta with a little bit of chicken broth as the sauce rather than like a big chicken breast with a little bit of pasta on the side. Um, I, tried the vegetarian thing for a while. And it's just, I, I have always preferred eating just a big plate of vegetables than to, to having like, you know, all that fake meat that's out there now. Um, I would pick, I would pick a bunch of fresh vegetables cooked and treated with respect over any of that fake meat stuff any day. And um, I think you can do a lot more with a vegetable than you can with meat anyways. Like, you know, if you buy a nice steak, you can do two things with it. You can sear it in a pan or you can cook it on the grill. But if you get a cauliflower, there's, you know, there's three dozen things you can do with a cauliflower and all of them are delicious. I'm just thinking that you must have put in years and years of boring stuff. I'm just, I'm just oh. of like chopping carrots and doing everything perfectly and, and really repetitive probably. Yep. The first day that I ever worked in a professional kitchen was my stage at Lee. Stage is when it's like a working interview. Um, Anyways, my first day, all I did all day, I julienned green onions and I sliced brioche. And every slice of brioche had to be the perfect thickness, every single one exactly the same. All the scallions had to be perfectly julienned to this like one millimeter thickness and the perfect length. So you're cutting on a bias just to this, to like, it all had to be so on point. Um, and it is it, it, getting, it's the same with anything, I think. Any any skilled trade, any craft, any art. Uh, I don't like to think of cooking as an art because I think that's when ego comes into the game. Um, I prefer to think of it more like like a craft uh, or a trade. Um, but anyways. I think it's your art, I don't care. It's all repetition. It is doing something 100,000 times before like before you've mastered it. That's why you have like, you have like I said, I've been doing this for 11 years and I'd say I know like 0.5% of all of the things that there are to know about cooking. Um, cause there's always something. And if you find yourself getting stagnant, it's just, you haven't done enough. You're not looking enough. You're not, there's, there's always something right in front of you that you don't know yet. And you just need to take that step to, to learn it. Um, and yeah, like, like, like I said, beat everything to death. I, I would never, it's like, I've now cooked, you know, uh, probably I've cooked thousands of steaks and it took me, it wasn't until probably my 500th steak that I was good at cooking steak. Um, 
same with, I don't know, like, like making pasta by hand. The first couple times I tried to make pasta by hand, it was crap. It looked terrible. The texture was no good. It didn't cook properly or it was too dry or it was too wet. Um, but you know, now that I've made pasta dough hundreds of times, I'm pretty good at it. Um, and I think people get discouraged when they cook at home and they make a recipe they've never tried before and it doesn't turn out the first time. <laughs> of course it didn't turn out the first time. You've never done it before. Like when was the last time you did something you've never done before and you naturally were just perfect at it? It, it doesn't happen, it really doesn't. So I think patience is super important. And yeah, just understand that before you get really good at anything cooking wise, you're gonna have to do it more than once. And when I say more than once, I mean a lot more than once. Uh, you, you were saying that we should um, address the mental health crisis in, yeah. in, your, in your, your field. Yeah. There are lots of people really suffering, I guess. Huh? 100%. Um, I, have, I actually wrote down some stats because it's, it's interesting to me. Um, so one in five hospitality workers will experience severe work-related mental health issues. Um, and of those people, um, I think it's six, six, six and 10 are too scared to speak to their superiors about the stress that they're undergoing, um, which is a problem in and of itself. We need to, as an industry, we need to move into a culture of being open to hearing about these problems and, and getting rid of the stigma of, you know, oh, this person is depressed. There's something wrong with them. It's like, yeah, <laughs> because they're working this crazy life in this extremely stressful field. And, and like I said, you have to be passionate to do this too. So your heart's in it. And when things go wrong or when things are difficult, it's just, it's not just like, it, it can be, it can be heartbreaking, right? You can really internalize stress uh, in this field. Um, chefs are nearly twice as likely uh, to suffer from drug and alcohol addiction versus the general population. Um, I think that statistic is like, I think it's dentists, doctors, firemen uh, are the top tier of drug and alcohol abuse and depression. And then right below that is chefs and construction workers um, for you know dealing with that kind of stuff. And it just, it can take you and bring you out um, if you're not careful. So I think the solution is to create a dialogue um, in the workplace that is, you know, you are more than likely to experience this. So when you do, please come and talk to us so that we can figure it out. Something that the company I'm working for now does quite well. Um, we have all these initiatives, um, all of our salaried staff have access to um, online therapy sessions and things like that, um, which is great. And we're very like, you know, we're all very open in this place about things that we're dealing with on our own time. We talk openly about, you know, our experiences with, with counselors or therapists and things like that. Um, and that for me, I've never seen that before in a restaurant. And I think it's so important um, because like I said, like, you know, we think about Anthony Bourdain who passed away was this year or last year, um, committed suicide. Right. And that's, you see it, you see it all the time when you're in the industry, you notice it. And what people don't realize is that there's a lot more going on here than just cooking and serving guests, right? Um, it's hard. It can be exhausting. And there's, the result is that, you know, mental health is, is a major problem um, 
in hospitality and that's it needs it needs dealing with and it needs dealing with you know now before it before it hurts anymore um so yeah it, like i said very happy with the way that this company is doing things i really really have appreciated talking to you mike it, I likewise. such an amazing person and i'm so proud of you thank you so proud of you it, <laughs> of course you were going to do something amazing like this I'm just glad you were able to express yourself in this world and, and you sure paid a lot of dues. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure you did. Mm -hmm. I'm really proud of you. Thank yeah. you. It's, uh, it's been quite a ride. I, I don't think, I don't think Mike in the 12th grade would have seen this coming at all. I don't, I don't think, I don't think I had even an iota of a hint of where I was going to end up, but um, it's been a really unique way to live. Um, and I like, I like it. I wouldn't have it any other way. Super against the, the grain of, you know, what the rest of the world does, so to speak. Uh, and I think that fits me pretty well. The original music for this episode was composed and performed by my former students, Ashley Rivera, Myla Carlos, and Chloe Sue. I hope you subscribe to this podcast series and leave your comments. If you're curious, you can watch a short video version of this episode on the Teaching the Teacher YouTube channel. Please follow us on Instagram at Teaching the Teacher or on Facebook too. Share, subscribe, send questions, leave comments. Thank you in advance for your support. Many thanks to Ken Yu and Maeve and Una Debit Tremblay for helping get this podcast off the ground. Post-production editing support was generously provided by Cameron Bryson, Pierre Tremblay, and Joseph Devitt Tremblay. And remember, stay in touch with your teachers. You can be sure they haven't forgotten about you. <laughs>